This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Just a quick warning before we get started. This episode of Millennial Love contains themes of rape and sexual violence that some viewers may find distressing. Hello and welcome to Millennial Love, a podcast from The Independent on everything to do with love, sexuality, identity and more. This week I am very excited to be joined by the brilliant Laura Bates. For those who aren't familiar with Laura's work, she is the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project and the author of several best-selling books about violence against women, including her latest, Fix the System, Not the Women. It's a brilliant book and I'm very excited to talk to her all about it. We're going to delve into subjects such as how misogyny affects our relationships, why we need to talk more about sexual violence in schools and beyond, and what men can do to help with this epidemic of violence against women that we are all currently facing. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. I've been following your work for years, so this is a real treat for me and I'm going to try not to take up hours of your time. (laughs) Um, So for those who aren't familiar with what you do, um, can you start us off by explaining what the Everyday Sexism Project is? Yes, it's incredibly simple. It's a database of people's testimonies of any kind of gender inequality from anywhere in the world, people of any gender. So it might be sexual harassment, it might be workplace discrimination, it might be sexual violence. And it's almost exactly 10 years now since I started the project and it's collected uh, well over 200,000 testimonies, which makes it the single largest data set of its kind that's ever been collected. So originally the aim of the project was to raise awareness, to force people to recognise that this is still very much an ongoing problem in a world where they often wanted to say that sexism didn't exist anymore. But now the project works offline, so we take the entries that we've received and we put them in front of the people with the power to change things. So using the stories from young people to convince ministers and MPs to put sexual consent on the curriculum, using the stories from women on buses and tubes to work with the British Transport Police to improve the way that they respond to sexual offences and so on. And I guess to strip it back all the way to basically exactly what sexism is, because I think it's just one of those words that we overuse now, particularly in the media, to the point where for some people it's kind of lost its meaning. So could you just briefly explain what is sexism and how does it affect our daily lives? So I think when I first started the project, I did it because I recognised that in the stories I was hearing from women and girls all around me, they were being treated differently, being discriminated against or being abused because of their sex. And that was what made me start using the word sexism. It seemed very clear to me that that was what was going on. Mm. And let's talk about your latest book, uh, Fix the System, Not the Women. So what made you want to write about this subject in particular? And could you give us a brief summary of what it's about? Yes, so I spent 10 years collecting and, and platforming and shouting about these stories in the hope 
that that would be enough to affect change. I had this um, naive optimism, I think, that if enough of us raised our voices collectively, people would be forced to take notice and to listen and to change things. Mm. And what I think we've seen over the last decade is that people have been forced to sit up and they have been forced to take notice and that the public conversation has shifted thanks to the incredible, courageous women who have raised their voices, not just through everyday sexism, but of course through other initiatives as well, like Me Too, Everyone's Invited. But what broke my heart was that I didn't necessarily see the change that we needed. And instead of the change that it was so clear to me was necessary from institutions, from systems, instead it seemed that people were still looking to women, looking to the victims themselves to be the change, to fix the problem. That women needed to be fixed, that we were the defective ones in every aspect of our lives, whether it's women being grossly discriminated against in the workplace, 54,000 women a year losing their jobs to maternity discrimination, and people think the answer is to send new mums on confidence courses, as if they're the problem. Or after the death of Sarah Everard, after the death of Sabina Nasser and Bobby Ann McLeod and Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, these ideas from the police, from the government and elsewhere, that we should be handing out more attack alarms, women should be more vigilant, that we shouldn't have taken that particular route, that we should be flagging down buses and learning the details of when we can and can't be arrested and carrying drink spiking testing kits with us on nights out. We're prepared to look almost anywhere except at the systems that are failing women. And so for this book, I felt so angry about that. And I wanted to try and write a book that in an accessible way really proves that actually there is institutional misogyny in the systems around us. And that that's what needs to change, not the women. It's astonishing that that stuff has all been happening so recently as well, because when you spell it out, it seems like such an archaic idea, mm. victim blaming and constantly blaming the women for the actions of violent men. But like you said, in the wake of all of those deaths of those women, the advice was, you know, get a rape alarm, wave down the bus, all that stuff. And it's, and I think we internalise that as well to a really damaging degree. You know, I had a really scary incident, as we all have scary incidents very regularly, um, quite recently when I was walking home from the supermarket in daylight, and um, there was a group of boys behind me, they must have been like 19, 20, and they were shouting and shouting and shouting. And I had music in and I purposefully didn't turn it down because I didn't want to hear what they were saying, but they were screaming at me. And then I heard like really loud bashing, like I think they were knocking on cars and there were loads of them and I turned and one of them ran in front of me and he was wearing a mask, like a full mask. I was absolutely terrified. So I just started walking really, really quickly and went into my house and then I remember, because my house is on the street, and you can see that I quickly shut all the shutters, hoping that they didn't see which house I'd gone into. And it was absolutely terrifying. And I got home, and the first thing I did was just order a rape alarm off Amazon. And it was just, it was the first thing that I thought I should do. And I definitely feel comforted having that in my bag. But it just, it just gets you so angry that that's what we have to do, isn't it? It does. And you know, this is not to say that anyone shouldn't do that if that's no, what makes them course, feel safe. Yeah. But it's the fury that we've all internalized these rules. No one ever sits us down and teaches us, you are responsible. Mm. But that is what we hear and what we learn. And I did a, a workshop that broke my heart recently with a group of girls who were 12 years old and 13. And one of them said, uh, we were talking about gender and how our lives would be different. And one of the girls said, if I was a boy, 
I wouldn't have to be scared all the time. And she talked about walking home, gripping her hockey stick in her hands at 13 in case someone attacked her. And gradually the other girls started chiming in and they talked about walking with their keys between their fingers. They talked about not wearing a ponytail in case someone grabbed it, about wearing flat shoes, about waiting after school in the winter so they could walk each other home, texting when they got home safe, all the things that me and my friends do on a day-to-day -day basis that we never stopped to talk about and that no one ever taught us, but that we've internalized is our, our duty to protect ourselves. And it's so internalized that even in our grief and our anger, when women die, we still couch it in those terms. It, it, I found it devastating after Sarah Everard that the thing that trended more than anything else online was she was just walking home and she did all the right things. And after Ashling Murphy in Ireland, she was just going for a run. And you know, of course I understand where that came from. This isn't to criticize anyone who posted that. But what that said to me was that was why it was an unspeakable tragedy, because in spite of doing all the right things and behaving in this perfect victim manner, they died. And of course, it explained why those are the cases that hit the headlines, because what we're really saying, if you take it to its extreme, is it wouldn't have been quite so tragic if she hadn't. You know, if she had been out drunk or at two o'clock in the morning or in a short skirt or meeting someone for sex or whatever it was, it would have been that little bit less tragic yeah. because we are prepared to accept certain levels of violence against women as, as, as a kind of baseline in our society. And that's where we're starting from. Even in our fury, we start from that point that it was angry and we were furious for that reason. And that was gutting to me. Yeah, it's a really, really stark reminder, I think. And, and like I said, it is, it's maddening and it's so deeply shocking that we are still in this place. Um, one of the things that I really liked about your book was the start of the book when you write about the list. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's something that I think we all carry with us all the time. And it's a really interesting way of putting it that I think will help us as individuals really wake up to the reality of this problem that we are all dealing with. Um, so can you explain to us what the list is and, and what made you want to write it? And I guess if, if you're willing to share some of the things that were on yours, I mean, for example, mine would be that experience I just talked about, that would be one of the many things on my list. I wanted to talk about the list and uh, the list is my name for this trailing kind of map of incidents that we carry behind us because I think that we're robbed of our lists. I think that we are robbed of being allowed to acknowledge and to grieve and to be furious about them by a society which from a really young age has forced us to doubt and second guess and dismiss and disbelieve even ourselves. So from childhood, women are so used, and girls are so used to hearing, you're overreacting, you've got the wrong end of the stick, he didn't mean it like that. I'm sure that didn't happen because you're a woman. It was just a coincidence. Take it as a compliment. I'd love it if someone said that to me. Get a sense of humor. We are so often asked, well, what were you wearing? And did you lead him on? Were you asking for it? And because of that, I think we have each so many experiences that we have partially buried and submerged and hidden in, in shame because our whole lives, often by people that we love and trust even, we're told you're overreacting, don't make a fuss, this is part of being a girl. So the first thing for me, I think, was allowing ourselves to reclaim that list because I think it's only when you start to recognize the enormity of it that you can see the impact it has on your life. Mm -hmm. And it's only when we can see that framework and that structure that we can recognize things as external oppression rather than internal shame and error, because what we're taught to do instead is to internalize it and take it on ourselves. 
I was so stupid. I never should have gone home with him. I shouldn't have been there at that time. I should have been a good girl and taken the right kind of minicab. All of this prevents us from seeing the problem for what it is. And when I look at my list, it, you know, it's so varied. It's not just extreme. It's not just incidents of sexual violence, although those incidents are on my list. But it starts when I was five years old and my parents left my, um, my grandparents' house after introducing my new baby brother to them for the first time. And when they came out to the car, there was a, a package on my mum's, the passenger seat of the car. She opened the package and it was a sort of ancient, ugly piece of gold jewellery. And she said to my dad, what's this? And he said, it's because you finally had a son. And that was where my list started at five years old, not knowing that I'd already been deemed less than my brother for being a girl. Mm. And from there, it, it goes through, you know, incidents of being rated out of 10 at school, being sexually assaulted at university, going to a university where a supervisor wore a black armband each year to mourn the day that women had been admitted to the college, Jesus. being sexually harassed on my first ever summer temp job as a teenager uh, by a much older male colleague and then called into my boss's office to be reprimanded because it was deemed to be my short skirt that had caused it. Mm. There are so many incidents that it's difficult even to think of them all, but actually writing them all down in one place was very cathartic and it was very revealing. Yeah, I think what's really illuminating about it is that, and I'm sure it was the case for you, is when you really think about all of these things, I'm sure like you know every woman will have maybe two or three that spring to mind. But when you really think about it, there will be as many as the ones you have in your book. And what is so shocking is that we have internalized those. And to the degree where, because, you know, at the time, very often when these things happen, because of shame and because of all of these reasons that we've talked about, you deny your ability to allow yourself to be a victim. Yes. And so that's, you know, that's something that I've experienced. It's something my friends have experienced. And, you know, over the years, we've had conversations where various things from our past have come up. And I've, I've, you know, I've reframed things that have happened to me and to my friends. Mm -hmm. And and that's what upsets me the most, I think, is the fact that we then don't allow ourselves the ability to be affected by it and to be traumatised by genuinely traumatising things. Absolutely. And also to have the catharsis of recognising that we weren't to blame. Yeah. And I, that's been a real recurring theme on, on this podcast. I've noticed people so often talking about reframing past events and that liberation of allowing ourselves that because I know there will be people I, there will be sections of the media who will argue that trying to suggest we make these lists is a way of disempowering women right mm. that it turns us all into cowering victims yeah. and the truth is that we have lived through these experiences we can't change that but what we can change is allowing ourselves to recognize them and of course for many women these lists will these lists will look different for every one of us and for many they'll include incidents of racism of homophobia of transphobia of ableism and there is such complexity there in those intersections as well and the fact that no two lists will ever be the same i think is part of the fascination and the tragedy of it let's go back to i guess part of where all this comes from you write in the book that you know we are socialized from day dot to you know, you gave a really good example of there of, of when you were five about how, you know, men are predisposed to aggression and women are predisposed to uh, frailty and fragility by comparison. To, I think there are a lot of people who would unfortunately hear something like that and say, don't be stupid, it's 2022, we don't live in that world. You know, what was that famous quote? Um, it was such a bad reference, but on Love Island, like a few years ago, when there was that argument between two contestants uh, about feminism. 
And the guy was like, what do you mean? Our prime minister's a woman. That was his line. So what do you say to people who, who deny the extent of the problem with that kind of line of argument? Well, just, I mean, just statistics are the answer for me. Uh, all you have to do is look at the stats and it, it completely speaks for itself. You, you can't argue that we've achieved equality while six out of our 23 cabinet ministers are women, a third of our MPs, a quarter of the members of our House of Lords, um, around 18 out of 108 high court judges, a fifth of our architects, a tenth of our engineers, uh, while women take 28% of speaking roles in films, but are three times more likely the men to have to take their clothes off on screen. And particularly, while a woman dies at the hands of a man every three days on average, half a million are sexually assaulted every year in the UK alone, 85,000 raped, one in four women will experience sexual violence. You know, I think at that point you, you, you ask, well, how, how much more do you need to hear? Yeah. And that it is starting from so young and that it's starting at school and that's what normalises it. Mm. Because on average, one rape per day of the school term is reported as happening inside a UK school. And a third of girls say that they experience unwanted sexual touching, sexual assault, while they're at school. So mm -hmm. we're talking about teenage girls being socialised into this experience that they would almost never use the term sexual assault to describe mm -hmm. because they're told it's banter, it's boys being boys, he probably likes you, don't make mm -hmm. a fuss. Can you give some examples of things that happen at schools that, that girls would be likely to dismiss? Because I know so many of the experiences that I think about and talk about with my friends did happen at school yeah. when we weren't as aware about this stuff. And, you know, I think kids today have a greater awareness you know obviously everyone's invited is a great example of mm -hmm. that but when we were at school it was just not something that anyone talked about and you know we were also rated out of 10 regularly we used to have this horrible um like gangway in the um dining hall where the women would walk down and there was a point when the boys would come and pull their trousers down and they'd be holding up their tray so they couldn't pick up their trousers um or they would be shouting out numbers rating the girls as they walked down the dining hall it was absolutely horrible um, those are quite obvious examples, but do you have any more kind of subtle examples of, of ways that this manifests at school? Yeah, so at school what we hear about at the moment is a lot of kind of often very subtle comments in addition to the more serious things which are absolutely still happening. But subtle comments about, um, for example, kind of quite outdated sort of biological determinism, you know, old girls just aren't as good at certain subjects. There's a lot of kind of an anti-feminist backlash undercurrent going on at the moment in schools and a lot of that is fueled by what's online and teenage boys are often quite targeted with this online so you get a lot of stuff about false rape allegations, Me Too is a witch hunt, um, women are destroying men's lives with no evidence and men everywhere are losing their jobs. There's that kind of vibe mm. to some of the stuff that we're hearing at, in schools. But also coming from schools themselves, I went to a school only a few years ago where the sex education lesson that they'd been given was that the, um, the girls in the class were each given a piece of sellotape and they were told to go and stick it on a boy's jumper and peel it off and then stick it on another boy's jumper and keep going and they were quite fluffy sort of woolen school jumpers. So after a few goes of this, the tape would lose its stick and fall to the floor and they were taught that's the lesson that we're learning today. This represents a woman's worth. If you sleep with more than a few boys, you become worthless. Oh my God. I mean, and that was happening, you oh know, not a hundred years ago, but just recently. And very recently, a young woman contacted me to say that at her school, she'd recently been ushered into the auditorium with all of her peers to hear from an external speaker 
who came in to tell them that abortion was a deathly sin, that almost every woman who's ever had one regrets it, that it's likely to give you cancer, um, you know, pictures, blown up pictures of fetuses, misinformation about development, the whole works. How is that even legal? It's, it's happening in loads of schools. I think people have no idea about a lot of stuff that's going on. That's wild. I mean, I remember I once, um, I've seen people, you know, the anti-abortion protesters um, outside clinics. There are loads of clinics in London where they used to appear really regularly. And now there are a few buffer zones in place, but they're not a nationwide thing, uh, which speaks volumes as well. Um, but I remember going to a clinic to look and see what they were doing and they were handing out these um, leaflets with complete nonsense on them about medical stuff and diagrams mm -hmm. and things that just made no sense. And it, it's wild to me that they're, they're plugging that to children who, uh, you know, that's going to stay with them. And that's the problem. That's why school stuff is so important because it, it sets a precedent for the rest of your life that is then you'll spend years trying to unlearn Absolutely. And, and what's at the root of that is, is misogyny. It's not about children's lives, because if it was, these people would be investing in all sorts of healthcare and children's services and good sex education and prevention. But, you know, the thing that really, really just crystallised it for me was in Walthamstow, where Stella Creasy's the MP and was standing up and trying to get a buffer zone put in place. Yeah. And they went after her because she was pregnant and the God, abuse yes, that she had based, that centred on her pregnancy and on her previous miscarriages, the abuse that she received as a pregnant woman from people supposedly absolutely thrilled about women being pregnant yeah. was so extreme. And it was the ultimate proof of the fact that this is never about whether a fetus is a human being. It's about whether a woman is. It's about whether women are really human beings. That's what the whole abortion debate is about. It's awful. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss I want to talk to you about gender roles a little bit because you write about how relationships and the way that we love is affected by these gender stereotypes that we are taught from such an early age um, so can you tell me a little bit about how that works and how misogyny I suppose in a wider sense hinders our romantic lives, particularly between straight men and women. Yeah, it's interesting because even now when we have this perception, I think, um, that we've achieved 
um, a, a great deal in terms of equality, that we have these very modern, supposedly equal relationships. The reality is that women are still doing 60% more household chores and, and extra labour than men are. They're doing about 70 minutes extra a day. During the pandemic, that facade of equality just completely crumbled when women were twice as likely to have to lose or resign their jobs um, because of the added pressure of childcare and domestic labour that was taken on during lockdowns. Um, there is so much proof, I think, of the fact that our relationships are not equal, but we have this kind of belief that they are. And I think it's something almost people think of as shameful to talk about. So it's difficult to, to get into it. But the reality is that we still live in a world where we are fed these fairy tale princess stories where the ultimate pinnacle of female achievement is the entrapment of a man, where other women are portrayed as rivals for men specifically, never as potential love interests, where platonic friendship is completely degraded by comparison to mm. this idea of a kind of heteronormative nuclear family arrangement as the kind of ultimate goal. And because of that, and also because of the fact that these experiences of sexual violence and sexism are so normalised, we end up in this bizarre situation where having somebody who does the bare minimum is portrayed to us as this ultimate win, this great goal. And it doesn't help that society goes absolutely mad if a man is seen to change a nappy, you know, or That drives me make insane. <laughs> I was, oh, yeah. I mean, what's that famous one with Daniel Craig when he was wearing a papoose and he was right. holding his kid? And it's like... Yes, that's not a news story. A man is holding his child, like not even changing a nappy, which is also a news story. I remember there's something like Gordon Ramsay or some guy confessed to changing a nappy. And it was like, oh my God, this person has changed a nappy. It's like, what? That is wild. Yeah, it's like, is the bar that low? But it just goes to show how deeply embedded all of this stuff is. And it's still, like you said, like it's just still ongoing. Yeah. and I think it affects our sex lives as well. Yeah. Because we grew up in a world where girls are slut shamed, where from such a young age, you know, when you see, for example, revenge pornography or a sexting scandal, as it's more commonly uh, known, happening at, in a school, you see the boy coming out of it as this lad, this stud, this player. The girl is a slut and a slag. She's very frequently forced to even move schools because of it. And then you kind of follow that through to this point where we have a situation where uh, 91% of men orgasmed in their last sexual encounter versus 64% of women. And you think we are living in a world that it treats men's sort of sexual needs as uh, something to be celebrated, as something natural, and it sort of suggests that women's sexual appetite is somehow unladylike, that it's unseemly, that we shouldn't be talking about it, that it's embarrassing. And so is it any wonder, and it kind of comes back, I think, to this thing where we take things which are broader societal problems and we internalise them as our own fault. Because I think lots of women would say things like, oh, I just don't feel that comfortable asking for what I want in bed. Mm-hmm. And so we bring it, we sort of suggest it's our problem, you know, oh, I just don't speak up enough. But if you look at those statistics, there's obviously something at play here that's much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. It's not us, it's the system. Yeah, I think what's really important to remember as well is that, you know, we talk so much about these you know in in the media kind of bubble we talk a lot about you know the importance of female pleasure and and female sexual autonomy and and we highlight all of these problems and shame but i think actually very rarely is the root of the problem i.e misogyny addressed Mm. and attached to those yeah and actually all of the all of those problems come back to that yeah but i think it's 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 irritating because i feel like there was a period of time when we were talking about that but then I feel like the word patriarchy came about and it got overused to the point where 
people didn't even want like if if you say the word some people will just immediately switch off mm. um and i know i know plenty of people who would um how do you think we go about reframing that and getting people i guess back on board with with what's really going on here well, I think partly it's about specificity. Mm. So when we talk about patriarchy, we're talking about something so big that it's almost difficult to kind of pin down what you mean. But if you try to really divide up the kind of institutions that you're talking about, what we're really trying to say, I think, when we use the word patriarchy is this is something systemic. This isn't individual, it's a systems failure. And it's the way that the world is built around us, not the way that we move through it, that is the problem. So for me, showing people what that means in practice is a useful way to move forward. So saying actually 2,000 police officers have been accused of sexual misconduct in the last four years alone. God. Or saying um, only one in 18 Met police officers accused of sexual assault ever sees a formal process brought against them. Or half of Met police officers found guilty of sexual misconduct kept their jobs. Mm. That is a, a clear sort of definition of the system problem that we're describing. And then it's really important for me to link that to the kind of outcomes and the societal impact. So I think, I believe that that systemic, that institutional misogyny is linked to the individual cases that we're encouraged to see as isolated incidents. Mm. That we're told that Wayne Cousins was a, an aberration, a bad apple that nobody could have seen coming, when in reality his colleagues nicknamed him the rapist and he'd been three times accused of indecent exposure. Or that the officer who shared the third photos of the bodies of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman did so in a WhatsApp group with 41 colleagues that these are system issues, they're not isolated incidents, and that the only way to fix them is to recognise that and to join those dots, and I think that's really crucial. And then to link that to the external impacts, that just 1.4% of rapes actually reported to the police result in a charge or summons. Mm. So the broken system results in a complete failing, a devastating failure to provide any kind of justice for survivors. Yeah. I think we need to talk about the broken system in that way as well, because that stat gets used a lot. And I think it's often, it's not really understood as to why that is. There are lots of reasons, you know, we've seen the way that women are victim blamed in a court of law when they go up against people with a sexual assault allegation. But even the process of actually getting to court is incredibly difficult. I remember I reported an, a sexual assault two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. No, last year, last January. And um, I went through the whole process. The police were very good to me. The police, I was surprised, were actually very kind and helpful. But then I was assigned a specific officer who was put in charge of the case. And she had like a half an hour phone call with me and basically explain, basically talked me out of going forward with it because she said, you know, the chances of you getting a conviction are so low, here's the stat. Um, you have to go through all the trauma of record, doing a video statement. We have to bring him in for a video statement. He's gonna know you've accused him of rape and then you're probably not gonna get a conviction. And then this guy is gonna know that you've accused him of rape and he knows where you live and he knows your name and he can find you on Instagram and all this stuff. Obviously that scared the shit out of me. So I was like, nope, fuck that, nope, not doing that. And I'm like, if that's happening to me, imagine how much that's happening and that's putting people off. And then you're getting all of this attachment of shame and all of these other things that we've spoken about. And then you get shoved on a waiting list for you know, therapy, which takes seven months. I mean, it's, it's wild, like seven, seven months to 12 months if you're lucky. 
And so this is what's like really going on here. And that's just the initial stage, you know, and it just gets worse if the case gets further and further along, doesn't it? Absolutely. And then you're talking about the CPS, which is another completely failing system. And that's the thing, these systems all interconnect. So you've got other systems where there are this kind of indignity on indignity, there's injustice on injustice. So you've got migrant women who are reporting an assault and instead of investigating the perpetrator, they start to investigate her uh, right to remain. Mm. You've got women who have no recourse to public funds because they're migrant women who aren't able to find any kind of support. You've got frontline women's services who should be there to support those women on those endless waiting lists who've had their funding slashed and are desperately grappling to keep their doors open, especially those which are by and for minoritized women. So at every level of the system, these failings interconnect. And then you say, okay, how do we change the system? What do we need? We need politicians, right? We need politicians who are prepared to ring fence this funding, who are prepared to take big picture changes like ratifying the Istanbul Convention, policy changes, looking at misogyny as a hate crime. And you go, ah, oh, but only six out of 23 cabinet ministers and a third of MPs and a quarter of members of the House of Lords are women. Mm. And you go, well, you know, maybe, maybe that won't stop them from caring about this stuff and tackling this stuff. And then you look at the evidence that they've been found to have utterly ignored gender in all of their response to COVID-19, which is no surprise when you recognise that no woman led the COVID briefings for six months in a row. And you think, how can we ever fix any one of these systems when they're all so interlocked? And that's why I think it's really important to look at the kind of global picture. On a more personal level, when we talk about um, sexual violence between men and women, I think, well, first of all, I want to ask you about the um, the false allegations of rape and how small a percentage that is, because yeah. that is very rare, isn't it? It's incredibly rare, vanishingly rare. It's, um, in terms of the statistics, certainly no more common than false allegations of any other type of crime, which we almost never hear about at mm -hmm. all. And even in those cases, if you look more closely, what you find is that even where false allegations are deemed to have happened, very frequently it's because of very complex needs. It's because somebody has accused someone of a particular allegation and it's turned out that the offence was in fact a slightly different offence. So it ends up being registered as a false allegation because it was a rape rather than a sexual assault or vice versa. You know, there are technicalities. Mm. It, it really isn't this, this huge dangerous issue. In fact, a man in the UK is 230 times more likely to be raped himself than to be falsely accused of rape. God, that's wild. That's how little the problem is. And the thing that you said as well that just really struck me was how little we hear about other false allegations of crimes. Yeah. I can't think of any other one. Right, like if someone's house is attacked in yeah. an arson attack, nobody goes scrolling back through their Instagram to see if they ever went to a fireworks display and they might have enjoyed it. And yet that's what we're saying, you know, if yeah. someone gets kidnapped, we don't say, well, it was just kind of, you know, non-consensual visiting. But we do hear people describing rape as non-consensual sex and euphemizing yeah. it in that way. It, it is wild, but we're so used to it that we don't necessarily even notice it. Yeah. Um, so that, I guess, brings me back to what I wanted to talk about with, with between men and women and who are in relationships and when there are those instances of sexual violence within the context of a relationship, which again, I think is one of those things that is incredibly complicated because you're in a relationship with this person. There are so many factors at play here as to why they shouldn't sexually assault you. Obviously, no one should sexually assault anyone, but you know, it, it, the last person you would expect to sexually assault you would be your partner. And that has all sorts of sort other ramifications. So how, how, how can that manifest and how common is that? 
So the reality is that sadly it is very common. Um, we know that around 85% of rapists are already known to their victims. So um, ironically, a woman is probably safer passed out drunk in an alleyway at two o'clock in the morning in a short skirt doing all the wrong things than in her pyjamas in her own bed. And that's um, a very difficult thing, but an important thing for us to grasp, I think. Um, it's also complicated. So in our society, we have this perception of rape as something um, that looks like one particular thing. But because our understanding of consent is so shoddy, a lot of people don't realise that removing a condom during sex without telling you or claiming to have put a condom on when he hasn't is a form of rape. A lot of people uh, don't understand that at any point during a sexual encounter, a woman can, or anybody, someone of any gender, can say, stop, I want to stop now, and that if the person doesn't stop, even if it was originally started as a consensual encounter, that that's rape. So part of it, I think, is that people almost don't trust themselves because we're so bad at teaching consent that people have been raped and don't know if they can use that term to describe it. But partly I think it comes back to the normalisation, a lot of which I think at the moment is influenced by online porn. So when I'm in schools at the moment with young people, which I, I visit schools about twice a week, so I work with tens of thousands of children, and it's really common to hear phrases like, rape is a compliment really, it's not rape if she enjoyed it, um, I get emails from girls that say things like, one that is indelibly imprinted on my brain, I'm, my name is Nicola, I'm 13 years old and I'm so scared to have sex that I cry nearly every night because a boy on uh, school showed me sex on his mobile phone and I didn't realise until I saw it that when you have sex the woman has to be hurting and crying. Oh God. And I know that sounds extreme but I think a lot of people don't realise how widespread videos of women being abused and being raped and being coerced and controlled are on the most mainstream, easily accessible porn sites. A really good study from Durham University recently led by uh, Professor Claire McGlynn found that one eighth of the front page, you know, mainstream porn website videos showed illegal or coercive acts. So this is completely widespread. It's mainstream. 60% of kids have seen porn by the age of 14, a quarter by the age of 12. So this is stuff that they're seeing and you end up in a situation where I went to a school and they'd had a rape case involving a 14 year old boy and a teacher had said to him, why didn't you stop when she was crying? And he'd said, because it's normal for girls to cry during sex. Oh my God. So part of it, I think, is that we are taking these completely skewed ideas of what sex is and what's expected of us into our adult relationships. Mm. It's so difficult because I feel like I want to try and talk to you about what's changing and what positive things are happening. But a part of me is struggling to do that because obviously it's been how long since Sarah Everard's death and we've seen there have been so many other instances of women murdered and the way that, like you said, it has been reported by the media and the way that it's been perceived just doesn't, doesn't give me much hope. Um, what reasons are there to be hopeful? Do you think? There are there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. There are also a lot of reasons to be angry and those two things can exist side Definitely, by side. Yeah. Um, I feel hopeful. I feel incredibly encouraged and inspired by the, the girls I meet at schools. We know that hundreds of new feminist societies have been started at schools over the country in the last few years. Um, I'm meeting girls who are so much more clued up and empowered than I was at their age about what's happening. It is still happening and we can't gloss over that, but they are fighting back, you know, they are raising their voices, they aren't they're refusing to be silenced. 
Um, we're seeing amazing organisations and charities who are doing incredible work battling this. You know, Pregnant and Screwed is a great example of a quite new organisation that is so scrappy and coming out absolutely fighting against the treatment of pregnant women during the pandemic. Um, and I think just in perhaps the last year, we've seen the first glimmers, perhaps, of accountability of a sense that this cannot be allowed any longer to slide in the resignations of Cresta Dick and Philip mm -hmm. Allett, who was the crime commissioner, police and crime commissioner, who said that um, Sarah Everard shouldn't have submitted to the yeah. false arrest. The fact that they were forced to resign, I think, after so many years of a lack of accountability, so many years of police statements saying the Met is not institutionally misogynistic, you know, so much dismissal and refusal to acknowledge the problem. And of course, there's a massive risk in celebrating any one person going as if it solves the problem. Obviously, it doesn't. But it does suggest that perhaps there is a hardening in our public preparedness to accept being fobbed off anymore. And so that makes me hopeful that we are starting to scrutinise systems and to hold mm. institutions accountable. And I think we just have to keep driving that focus. It's not about the women. It doesn't matter what she was doing. It doesn't matter what she was wearing. It doesn't matter where she was. Mm. Um, and, and focusing there, you know, I'd like to never, ever hear the words isolated incident ever used ever again. Yeah, I think the anger actually helps, doesn't it? Because it does, it, it motivates people. And when it's when it's louder than ever, and it does feel like it's getting louder and louder and louder, that is what does incite change and it provokes conversations with people who might not have necessarily thought about these issues yeah. before. Um, finally, I wanna ask you about what men can do to help. You know, I think one of the things that I saw trending on Twitter a lot um, in the wake of all of these horrible murders was, you know, talk to them, how many men in your lives have asked in, in women's lives, how, how many times have they asked you, are you how are you doing? How are you, like, you know, what can I do? Yeah. And no one, no one has asked me that. <laughs> and loads of people were saying, nope, I haven't heard any men talking about Sarah Everard's death. I, I haven't heard any. Yeah. Um, so what can, what can men do? There is so much that men can do, I think. At every different level of society, um, obviously, men who are in positions of power and authority, men who are gatekeepers can get started on fixing these systems. And the way to do that is not to come up with their own half-baked ideas about new CCTV cameras. It's to go to the frontline women's services who have been working their expertise in this area for decades and to look at the solutions they've already laid out on a platter in their reports and recommendations. Start there. Um, I think for, for men who aren't necessarily in those positions, there is so much. The first thing I think for me is that there is a critical mass of men, the majority of men, who aren't behaving in this way themselves, but don't necessarily have any idea the scale and nature of the problem. And informing themselves is a really good way to start, to put themselves in a position to be able to help. And that doesn't necessarily mean requiring that the women in their lives relive their trauma to, to educate them. The Everyday Sexism website has 200,000 testimonies and it has a brilliant search function. So they can go and they can put into that search bar perhaps the, the area that they work in, perhaps the area that they live, perhaps the field that they work in. You know, If you're an engineer, type in engineering and immediately you can see what your colleagues are dealing with. Type in the area that you live and suddenly you're enlightened about what your female neighbours are going through. That I think is a really important first step and once they've educated themselves I think they have such a role to play in educating other men and younger men. So bringing these conversations into those male-dominated spaces, whether it's the WhatsApp group, whether it's the locker room, whether it's the football pitch, whether it's the uh, work group that you're in, 
starting these uncomfortable conversations and if it feels uncomfortable and awkward and difficult just think how it feels for us to live it and you know I'd love talking to your son about consent and healthy relationships to become the new telling your daughter not to wear a short skirt there's something that all of us all parents but I think dads especially I'd love to see getting involved in that in role modeling and talking to young men about this it, it doesn't have to always look like waving a banner or going on a march. There was one man who wrote to the project and he said, I've been reading these stories and it's really shocked me the impact on women. I'd never thought before about how it makes women feel when they're shouted at in the street. And he said, I determined that the next time it happened, I would do something about it. I was, I was sure. And then I was walking down the street and I saw some men on a building site shouting, get your tits out at a woman in front of me. And he said, I panicked. And in the moment, all these grand speeches and statistics flew out of my head and the moment was passing and I didn't know what to do. So I lifted up my T-shirt and showed them mine instead. <laughs> and I know that's really silly and it's small and it's simple, but actually job done. Yeah. It sent the message, you're not doing it to me, are you? So why yeah. are you doing it to them? So it doesn't always have to look like a kind of grand confrontation. It, it might be a quiet word with a mate, actually. Uh, it might be checking in with a woman and asking her, what can I do? I've noticed this thing happening at work. Do you want someone to support you? Do you want to report it? You know, do you want me to speak to him? There are so many things that men can do. And, and I think learning and listening is the first step. Mm. Finally, it is time for our Lessons in Love segment. So this is the part of the show where I ask every guest to share something they have learned about relationships. I think, Laura, from you, it would be really great. I mean, you're such an expert in this area through all of the books you've written and all of the research you've done. I guess, what's the one lesson that you would want to share with listeners who, who, might, who are not very well versed in this subject and something that will help them, I suppose, if they are either a, a survivor of sexual assault or or dealing with you know the ramifications of violence against women as as we all are mm. i suppose well i think the single thing i would most want to share with survivors is that this was not and is not and was never your fault and that you're not alone mm. and i know those sound like very simple things but actually they're things i think it can take a very long time to allow yourself to let sink in and I think for, for girls and for young women, the single thing I would like to tell every single girl in the country is the legal definition of sexual assault. Because a week before I started the Everyday Sexism Project, I was sexually assaulted on a bus. And at the time, I never would have used those words to describe a man grabbing me between the legs. And the idea that I had the right to report it, that I was legally protected from it, that it was sexual assault, None of that crossed my mind. And I see it now with the girls I work with who've been grabbed and groped and pinched and slapped and tucked and tickled. And they would never use that word to describe it either. And so they're disempowered by not knowing that the law says that it is a sexual assault if a person touches another person. The touching can be anywhere on their body. If the touching is sexual in nature, the person being touched doesn't consent and the person doing the touching doesn't have reason to believe that they consent. And I, I'd love to just have everyone know that in the country, everyone of every gender, because I think sometimes that very simple and basic information is missing. It's missing so it's missing so much. And it's so strange because it's such necessary information and it blows my mind that we weren't taught this at school or at university. You know, at university when most people are having sex for the first time. Why is this not part of the program for students for freshers week and we're learning pythagoras and all the times you've used pythagoras since you left school or or pi or trigonometry or whatever it is 
it's so odd. We teach students everything about uh, map reading and, you know, everything they'll need to navigate the world physically. We teach them everything they need to know to make change in a shop and these practical things. And yet relationships are a, a near universal life experience and we leave young people completely unprepared. We're completely failing them. It's, mm. It doesn't even make any sense. It's mm. utterly bizarre. Well, thanks to people like you, I think hopefully things are changing and we are educating people a lot more about these things. Um, and it's about, it's about time. Um, that is sadly all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, if you are a fan of Millennial Love, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also watch us if you are more of a visuals person. You can watch us now on Independent TV. Um, and do share and subscribe and like and do all of those things so that more people can see and hear our episodes. You can also keep up to date with everything to do with the show on Instagram. Just search Millennial Love and I will see you soon. Bye. If you or someone you know has been affected by child sexual abuse, call Childline on their helpline for children and young people who need to talk. Victim support also provides emotional and practical help to victims or witnesses of any crime, whether or not it has been reported to the police. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.